Good morning, Central Baptist Church. And also good morning to those who are following us online. We extend a warm welcome to you all. Shall we open in a word of prayer? Lord, may you strengthen us to endure all kinds of adversities that we may come across. Give us strength to emulate you and the saints of old who understood that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. O oh Lord, open our eyes and prepare us for this glory. Teach us to remain faithful to you. Help us to learn from the sufferings of the early church as recorded in your word. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we come to chapter 8 of Acts after concluding Acts 7 when we left last week Stephen had died. His death was followed by intense persecution and most of the believers fled. But we notice that the apostles remained in Jerusalem. During Stephen's execution, we were introduced to a young man named Saul in Acts 7, verse 58. The people who accused Stephen of blasphemy had laid down their garments at the feet of Saul depicting that Saul had tremendous authority. Acts 8 begins with a description of the great persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem following the death of Stephen. Let me state upfront that Acts 8 is a significant chapter in that it marks the starting point for the extension of the gospel to Judea and Samaria and to the rest of the world. From this point on, the focus is no longer Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world. Stephen, therefore, sandwiched the ministries of two men, Peter in the first part of the book, and Saul, soon to be known as Paul. But first things first, let us consider the aftermath of Stephen's death and glean some lessons from this transitional chapter. It's an important chapter in that if we do not obey Acts 1 verse 8. Acts 8 verse 1 will happen to us. We need to take that into account. Acts 8 verse 1 part A reads, And Saul approved of his execution. Let us briefly look at the name, the man named Saul. Who is this man? 
According to tradition, Saul was born in the same year that Jesus was born. He was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, which is in the southern part of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, according to Acts 22, verse 3. He was the son of a Pharisee, Acts 23, verse 6. A Roman citizen, Acts 16, verse 37. Acts 22, verse 25 to 28, which means his parents were people of means. They were wealthy to be able to acquire the Roman citizenship. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, and Philippians 3, verse 5. He was educated in Jerusalem by Gamaliel, according to Acts 22, verse 3. And according to history, he had earned an equivalence of two PhDs, which means he was thoroughly educated. He became a, dev a devoted Pharisee, according to Acts 22, verse 4 to 5. And measured by the law, his life was blameless. Philippians 3, verse 6. I have just introduced to you the young man who superintended over the death of Stephen and proceeded to ravage the church until the Lord Jesus Christ stopped him on that road to Damascus, as according to Acts 9, verse 1 to 5. So this was so. What did he do to believers? Number one, he approved of Stephen's execution. Acts 8 verse 1. It is most likely that Saul was part of the group that was involved in intense arguments with Stephen in Acts 6. Among other motives, since Saul was the most educated man in Palestine at that time, he must have felt insulted when he lost the argument to Stephen in Acts 6 verse 10. He was persuaded that he was right in his convictions and that Stephen was wrong and was thus determined to silence him. So we read, and Saul approved of his execution. The phrase translated, and Saul approved of his execution, according to ESV, or Saul was in a hearty agreement with putting him to death by the NAS, is not strong enough to vividly describe Saul's cruelty. Suffice to say, approved or consenting or agreement means he was pleased with the execution. He was in a hearty agreement and took pleasure in the death of Stephen. Approving the, stone, approving the stoning of Stephen 
depicts the extent to which he was willing to go in exterminating the church and anyone else who dared proclaim the name of Jesus. Saul was the chief instigator as he was determined to uphold the traditions of his fathers. He did not stop there. After approving of the execution of Stephen, secondly, he ravaged the church. Look at verse 1b of Acts 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. X81b provides insights into Saul's murderous attack on the church. Look at the words and the phrases used here. On that day. On which day? The day Stephen was stoned. This day was followed by a great persecution against the church. Second, the phrase a great persecution against the church means a mega persecution, a vicious, widespread, thorough and aggressive persecution the act was intense against the church in Jerusalem. Thirdly, it was so intense and vicious that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Men and women were uprooted from their homes and dragged off to jail where some died and their children were orphaned. Friendships were destroyed. If it were to happen here, it means some of us will be jailed, some will be dragged off into prisons. The friendships that we know here will no longer subsist. This is what happened. Those who could flee fled to Judea and Samaria and even beyond. The word translated scattered means broadcasting in the sense of planting or sowing seeds. Those who were scattered were being spread like seeds, the way our mothers and grandmothers used to do with Rapoko. You scatter it as you go. So this is it's almost random. They did not, but these Christians did not keep quiet wherever they went. They spread the word. They told their stories throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Despite this terrible impact on the Christian lives, the persecution served to spread the gospel to other regions. Despite the intensity of the violence and attacks, the apostles 
remained in Jerusalem. The last part of verse 1 says, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Why did the apostles remain in Jerusalem? Commentators say several things, including this one. It looks like the attacks were targeted at the Hellenists who were closely related and identified with Stephen. So the suggestion here is that the Hebraic Christians were spared, including the apostles. I don't think this is the actual reason. A more likely reason is that the apostles chose to stay in Jerusalem in order to hold the church together. They had to continue to provide leadership. Remember in Acts 5, verse 28, the Sanhedrin had said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings. This means Jerusalem was full of Christians and to run away would have to abandon the work that the Lord had given, that the Lord had established in Jerusalem. So they remained in Jerusalem to nurture, provide leadership and direction to the many Christians who were there. By staying behind, they de demonstrated courage and endurance in order to ensure that the early church had a solid base in Jerusalem from which they would launch the ministry into the, into the world. So they stayed behind. Another thing. The apostles were not the only people who demonstrated courage in the face of danger. Verse 2 reads, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Despite the tension in the city, devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. These were men who clearly disagreed with the illegal procedures that were used to kill Stephen. So they resolved to give him a decent burial, thereafter lamented over him. Is it right to lament over your loved one? The answer is here. We can lament over our, over our loved ones. We can weep over them. Of course we know that they would have gone to be with the Lord. It doesn't substitute the fact that we lament over them. So we have looked at Saul's soul, the zealous persecutor. We have also looked at what he did to the church. Let us now look at how he persecuted the church. How did he ravage the church? Verse 3, 
gives us the specific details of how Saul persecuted the church. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. Let's break it down. Verse 3a. But Saul was ravaging the church. Ravaging the church means he made havoc. It means he was cheering the church like an army destroying a city or a wild animal cheering a board of its prey. He was vicious and ruthless in his attack. The middle part, and entering house after house. This shows his methods. These methods were targeted. These methods were on a mass, massive scale. His methods were violent against the Christians in Jerusalem. And the last part, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He dragged them off from their homes into the streets before throwing them into prisons. Someone said, Saul of Tarsus was to the Christians what Adolf Hitler's Gestapo would be to the Jews. He was using brutal force to attack men and women, defenseless men and women, all because they were Christians. Let me, let me allow this soul to talk for himself, lest you say I am being unfair to him. Let me allow him to talk for himself. And I will use three three illustrative passages. The first one is Galatians 1, verse 13 to 14. For you have heard of my former life in Jerusalem, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Second passage, Acts 22, verse 4 to 5. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women and the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those, who, those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Acts 26, verse 10 to 11. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison 
after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blasphemy. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. As you can see, he was furious. So and he compelled the believers to blasphemy, to renounce their faith, to recant, to deny Jesus. If they renounced their faith, he would set them free. If they didn't, they would be killed. That's the passage we have here. It will help us as we go with the book of Acts to see how the Lord will work in the life of this man and possibly in our lives. Let's make observations and implications of this great persecution for the 21st century church. What is, let's make some observations. Observation number one is that the great persecution recorded here is not a remote experience to the church in the 21st century. It's not a distant experience to the 21st century church. We can trace it from the first century to the present day. Let me illustrate. A study of the 1040 window clearly shows that Christian persecution is still intense. The 1040 window is located from 10 degrees to 40 degrees north of the equator and is home to roughly 4.6 billion people in 69 countries from North Africa to South Asia. This window is host to the largest number of religions that are antagonistic to the to Christianity, such as Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. In this window, you will find countries such as North Korea, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Syria, Sudan. There are militant groups like ISIS. Of late, we have witnessed unprecedented rise of Christian persecution in Nigeria by the Fulan Hezmen and Boko Haram. These are people like Saul who are committing these, this persecution to innocent people simply because they are Christians. Second observation. When we are faithful to the Lord, we will experience persecution. Yes, when we experience difficulty, opposition, troubles, we must know in a great measure that we are in the way of the Lord. At work, 
they will oppose you. They will persecute you. In school, at college, even in the home. Why? This is because the truth of Jesus is always offensive to the natural and unsaved mind. We will experience persecution at work and all those places I have mentioned because the people there do not in any way understand what the Lord is doing. Always remember that we are fighting a war, a spiritual war, and we should always ask the Lord to fill us with his Holy Spirit in order to stand firm in the presence of persecution. Observation number three, God is sovereign. Persecution of the Christians cannot and will not thwart the purposes of God. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. His is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So how do we apply this message. How should we apply it? A few suggestions. Persecution cannot separate us from the love of God. Persecution cannot separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, verse 35 and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Therefore, in times of persecution, we should be strong and hang in there. You may be going through difficulties, distress or pain. This may be physical or emotional or spiritual. Don't give up knowing that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Remain faithful. Though the early church was ravaged, dragged off from their houses and committed to prison, they clung tenaciously to the Lord. Let us remain faithful to him despite the adversities. Second, we have a message to tell to the nations. This is a message of truth, a message of love, a message of grace, a message of forgiveness, and a message of hope. We see from our passage that those who were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria were also scattering the message of Christ as they were going. Let us preach this message no matter what happens. Friends, sharing the gospel should be a lifestyle at home, at work, at school, 
as we drive in comfort or in hardship, preach Christ who is the hope of glory. Let us preach him. We have a message. We have a great song. We have a message to tell, to give to the nation. A song to sing to the nation. The last point. Let us pray for the persecuted brothers and sisters in the 1040 window. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit may move mightily and transform lives in this window. In our homes even, even in our country, let us pray that the Lord may protect the persecuted, that he may provide a way of escape to some, endurance to others. But let us also pray for the persecutors. I am convinced that Stephen, when he was dying after that great message, in verse 60, he prayed this prayer. Lord, do not hold this against them. That message and this prayer must have played a great part in what we will see when Paul comes to the knowledge of the serving God. Prayer is effective. Let us pray. This is the word that the Lord had given me. I hope someone picked one thing or the other. The challenge I leave us with is, will your anchor hold in the presence of persecution?